Hi, everybody. Our friends at Faith in Public Life are circulating a petition to push Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and every senator to act on gun violence and end mass shootings. Senators must act now to free us from fear. Our family, our friends, and neighbors shouldn't have to live in danger. The link to the petition is in the show notes, or you can visit the website at faithinpubliclife.org. That's faithinpubliclife.org. You are listening to Lord Have Mercy, a podcast about God, sex, and the Bible. I'm your host, Crystal Cheatham, and today I sit down with new-to-the-app author, Samantha Field. Samantha grew up in a fundamentalist cult, but escaped as a young adult. Now she writes about being a bisexual woman and an abuse survivor, exploring intersectional feminism and liberation theology. And now, Samantha. Okay, so your bio online is really short, <laughs> yeah. but the part that captured me was that you um, came from a fundamentalist space like myself, but in a particular way, you call it a fundamentalist cult. Yes. What was, what cult was it? Like what? Um, so the denomination I was a part of is called Independent Fundamental Baptist, okay. which exists all over the country, but exists in kind of a particular way in the South. Um, And I refer to my particular experience as a cult, not because I believe every IFB church is a cult, but my particular experience with my church and my pastor um, actually fits 10 out of 14 qualifiers for what makes a cult, according to um, some researchers um, who've done a lot of work in that. And we were particularly isolated like just take all of like fundamentalism and push it towards an even more extreme end with lots of spiritual abuse and authoritarian control in the church like structure and uh, members policing each other and and things in a pretty egregious way yeah that sounds really really dangerous and traumatic um it was yeah it was intense um was this a cult that you're family had become a part of um or did you like find it on your own (laughs) so um my mom start we started attending independent fundamental baptist churches when we were stationed overseas in iceland um and because my mom visited the base um like interdenominational like chaplain and was like that wasn't super for her she but there was one church off base that was a missionary plant um, that was very friendly to military families. And that was an independent fundamental Baptist missionary church. Um, and uh, my parents still think very fondly of that. I was, we were about, I was about seven um, when we joined that. So like my experiences were fairly, fairly, fairly standard, I think. Um, and then when we came back to the States, we kind of kept going to independent fundamental Baptist churches. And we ended up in one in New Mexico that was actually kind of hostile to homeschooling because they ran a church school. So when my mom didn't put me in the church school and continued homeschooling me, that became an issue. So when we were stationed in Florida, 
it, at that point it became very important to her that she find an independent fundamental Baptist church that shared her homeschooling values. And those two things kind of combined led to um, uh, some pretty toxic stuff. And the church wasn't super bad when we first joined it. It was like over time the pastor became more and more cult-like and more and more domineering and it got like it was it was like being in a pot of boiling water like you don't know when you first jump in it's got to be bad yeah you say cult stuff and like i think david koresh you know <laughs> yeah yeah and uh like multiple wives and like making up a story about god coming in a penis-shaped rocket ship, you know, like Kool-Aid yeah. drinking kind of cult stuff. And, you know, actually people used to, I mean, some people used to say that Seventh-day Adventism was a cult, and it definitely wasn't. It was just um, fundamentalism. Yeah, believing the believing the Bible in a ridiculously literate way, I mean, uh, yeah, literate way. And so um, some of the practices that we, that were just like over the top were, you know, there would be women who would dress in clothes up to their necks and long sleeves and um, no wedding rings and, you know, a modest dress to a fault and no makeup. And it was just like most of the, most of the rules about modesty were on women and that just kind of snowballed into um, a, like a really oppressive system. Um, yeah. 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 Um, it was like, I usually use the term cult just because like the, the, the pastor scare quotes, um, mm -hmm. he, like, it's more like if you're, if, if you're familiar with like Institute of Basic Life Principles and ATI and Bill Gothard, okay. it's like, it's like that. He, like we had all the fundamentalist trappings of like, by the time I went to college, my best friend was convinced that wearing skirts that showed your ankles wasn't modest. Like <laughs> it, it went to all kinds of yeah. unhealthy places, but the pastor over time, um, he really inserted himself into family dynamics mm -hmm. and tried to control the family life of all of the people in his church. Um, tried to have like decision-making power over everybody's personal choices yeah. from like haircuts to, you know, food you eat to holidays you celebrate. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. It like over time. Uh, and like when my parent, like for example, when my parents made a decision for me um, that was concerning something around my health. Um, he tried to override them. Wow. Like, he, he was a very authoritarian, very abusive leader um and then being a member of that church um like when you study authoritarian structures one of the pedestals that like dictatorships kind of rely on is um involving people in the authoritative system and like basically when they're a part of the system then they have like then they're like emotionally invested in enforcing the system mm -hmm. and like their identity kind of gets wrapped up and like if if they're wrong about this, then it means they've done some really horrible things, so they can't be wrong. Yeah. And then, so the community all kind of, like, gets involved in making sure the authoritarian structure stays in place. Um, like, one one example, I was at a summer camp uh, when I was 17, and it was, like, this camp revival thing. It was church all day. Generally a miserable experience in the middle of the swamp in Georgia. It was unfun. 
Um, and before we could get into the cafeteria, we had to answer a Bible quiz question, some kind of Bible trivia question. Um, and one day the question was name a place in the Bible. Um, and, uh, I always, I always forget it now. Let me look it up real quick. Yeah. Um, uh, so this kid in front of me, he names a place in the Bible. He names Syracuse. He says Syracuse is in the Bible. And the person in charge goes, no, it's not. <laughs> um, and me, having you know just taken New Testament survey at my fundamentalist Bible college, is actually Paul like shipwrecked there. Here's like chapter and verse. You're wrong. Syracuse is in the Bible. Um, <clears throat> and <laughs> um, my best friend, who's also my pastor's daughter, once we were inside the chapel, she like grabbed my arms so hard it left bruises and dragged me to the other side of the room and started yelling at me, like not metaphorically yelling, but yelling, like voice raised yelling at me about how it's sinful to um, like correct a man of God, especially oh, in public. And I was just like, no, no, he was wrong about something the Bible said. Um, you that that's if like you're supposed to be like the Bereans and Paul said like if I'm wrong like check it with scripture and like I'm doing what's right um and she was like you're not supposed to touch the Lord's anointed um it's it's just it, it was a whole thing and like that kind of behavior was like pretty pretty commonplace that is quite disgusting um yeah, you were definitely in a cult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess uh, we could actually even, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but how how do you, I feel like your story and my story are very connected in that we had somewhat of like these really traumatic experiences um, with fundamentalism, with this view of religion that doesn't allow for for much human experience to to influence it. Um, how did you go from that place of just like, uh, you know, uh, that place of trauma to now this place of enlightenment and how are you able to hold on to your faith through that transition? Um, Big question. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I think for me, like how I got out in the first place has a lot to do with the fact that I never really belonged to begin with. Um, growing up, growing up a woman who's pretty assertive, um, confident. Like if I had been a man growing up in this circle, I very much would have been groomed to become a preacher boy towards spiritual leadership. Like those are definitely where my, like gifts kind of belong and fit in in that world um but because I was a woman I was cut off from that path and I like when boys around me were starting to be given like authority and opportunities and I wasn't getting those same things even though I knew I was like I was smarter than them and better at public speaking than them and a better like study of the Bible than like every, like every possible metric, I was better than them. And, but they were, it was just automatic because they were men. And that I had a lot of frustration and resentment over that. Um, being queer also was, uh, a struggle. <laughs> um, because like you just, 
you're carrying that with you into every space that you go in, that there's something fundamentally wrong with you, you think. And you know that like there's, you're never going to be accepted because you can't accept yourself. Um, so basically the first time I brushed up against a community where I was accepted for who I am as a woman, my spiritual gifts are accepted. Um, my talents and abilities were accepted and my queerness was accepted. I was just like, whoa, uh, or, or swear words allowed on the podcast. Absolutely. I was like, whoa, fuck fundamentalism. This is great. Like who needs that shit with like, this is possible. Um, so for me, like the second that I had an opportunity at family and real connection and acceptance, I was like that, I want that. That's good. Mm. Um, and interestingly enough, that actually started happening when, because I, I, I was at college at Pensacola Christian and then I graduated and I went to Liberty University okay. and actually kind of encountered a lot of people who were very disenchanted with Liberty, um, who mm. were Liberty okay. students and weren't students anymore, but still lived in the area. Um, and, like, I started kind of engaging with the community, like, outside of Liberty, that they were very, like, like the liber- Liberty disaffected. Like, they're like, the oh, Liberty sucks. And those became kind of my friends and who I was hanging out with. And I tried pot and, like, all these things. And nobody treated me badly for hmm. being a normal person, basically. Yeah. Um, so I was like, this is good. I would like to have more of this experience. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and then another big component is just I'm just fundamentally a curious person mm-hmm. I have to know everything <laughs> like if there's something in the world to be learned I want to know about it and that has always been true like when I was growing up it was channeled into what were considered appropriate paths so I was obsessed with like um arguments supporting King James Version only like as a position, the Christians mm-hmm. are only allowed to read the King James version of the Bible. Uh, I was obsessed. We're with that. so nerdy that we would actually have those conversations. That's just hilarious. <laughs> yeah, um, I read basically everything published on Young Earth creationism before 2005. Like if there was a book out on that subject before 2005, I had read it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was completely obsessed, and like, but those were like appropriate channels. And then I kind of I went to college. And the fundamentalists were right. Book learning gave me all sorts of ideas. Women weren't supposed to be educated where I came from. I kind of bucked the system in a big way when I decided to go to a fundamentalist Bible college. Mm -hmm. Um, But I started encountering a little bit, a little bit more, like slivers more. Um, Like I ran into somebody who was a Pentecostal and didn't read the King James Version of the King James Version of the Bible, and he was totally okay with that. And I was like, what? Wait, huh? (laughs) Um, And then I went to Liberty and I actually had a few professors at Liberty that kind of very gently kind of tried to nudge me a little bit closer to um, evangelicalism and less fundamentalism. Um, mm-hmm. I've since, you know, disappointed all their hopes and dreams for me for sure. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, they were very happy when I like stopped being a fundamentalist and became a, like a more moderate evangelical. But now that I'm just like, out here this hippie liberal christian they're just like wait no that was too far that's not what we meant they're like i'm a feminist i am queer i'm a liberation justice person and they're just like oh we messed up (laughs) i mean i'm sure being queer kind of forces you to to do that you know it really forces you to reevaluate the way that you experience faith. And honestly, I mean, Christian, I mean, the fundamentalist spaces, they do it to themselves. I, like, like just what you were saying, like, 
you can't imagine yourself in a future. Uh, you can't imagine a future for yourself in a place where they uh, don't have a narrative for you to have a future, right? When did you actually start to to come out, and how did that shape um, how you became that liberal? leftist, <laughs> uh, progressive, feminist, queer, you know, woman of the cloth. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it actually, interestingly enough, started with Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. Okay. Because I got curious, and the library at PCC had it for whatever reason. You could check out Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. It was probably there for ministerial students to write opposition papers about or something. <laughs> Jokes but I read them. it out. I checked it out and was like, you know what? I'm going to see what this guy has to say. Um, and a lot of his arguments I had actually encountered before doing the the paths that I treaded earlier in my life. But there is a section in the beginning of chapter two where he has this like multi-paragraph screed about who he considers the the Christian God to be. Um, and now, of course, I completely disagree with him. But at the time. I read that and didn't have this word to say, but inside my head I'm going, oh, fuck, um, because his description description matched the fundamentalist description of God. Um, what fundamentalists said about God was what Richard Dawkins was saying about God. Yeah. He was just doing it in a really uncomplimentary way. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, but he's not wrong, though. Hmm. And then I really didn't know what to do with that. Um, and right around that same time is when my parents finally decided to leave that ridiculous church. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was alienated from the faith community I'd grown up in. Um, I was doing well-ish at Pensacola Christian. But again, things were happening. Like I was getting dragged up to the dean's office and being like, are you are you a lesbian? And I was like, no. <laughs> I don't think so. I'm not. Ha, tricks on them. I'm bi. But, um... <laughs> not by far, my <laughs> friend. <laughs> um, so I was struggling a lot. So there was a couple of years where I don't think agnostic or atheist really describes where I was. It was just apathetic. I just didn't care. I didn't care if God existed. I didn't care if God was real. I didn't care about church. I didn't care about faith. I didn't care about religion. Um, I just, I couldn't make myself go through the motions anymore i stopped doing the daily devotionals i stopped like caring about king james and young earth creationism and i just i just kind of stopped mm. and um which is weird because at pcc you still have to go to church like three times a week so i'm still like <laughs> doing all of that but not paying attention you know writing fan fiction during sermons like not participating in the system anymore um and then when i was at liberty I uh, didn't have to go to church. Uh, as a graduate student, uh, Liberty's administration is like, you should go to church and be a, have a good Christian testimony. And I'm like, but you're not saying I have to. Oh. So not. <laughs> um, so I didn't. Um, and then a friend of mine, my second year, was like, hey, you could like come to church with me. And I liked him. And I was like, you seem like a reasonable person. I imagine you're not going to a terrible church. And he was going to a Presbyterian church at the time. Um, it was like a church plant. It met in a high school. Um, they had contemporary music. And I was just like, what? What is, what is this? And then I got really curious 
again. And I was just like, I'm going to go to like every kind of church there is because I was told a pack of lies about what church is. So I'm just going to figure out what church is to people. Um, Good so on I, like, you. I, I attended like a high mass in Latin. I attended a low mass. I went to Presbyterian churches and Reformed Baptist and Methodist and um, went to a Quaker service, which was definitely the weirdest. But I was just like, I'm going to, I don't have to like follow rules. So I'm just going to do whatever I want. Um, and that experience is illuminating because it showed that it was like really, really direct um, proof that my church had been very wrong about how other denominations experience their faith. And I was like, there's more than one way to be a Christian. How illuminating. <laughs> yeah. So it's like once that I was like, Oh, there's like more than one way to be a Christian. I can find a way to be a Christian that works for me if I want to. Um, and then I was still at Liberty. Um, so there was, that, that was still like influencing me a little bit. Um, especially since like Gary Habermas is there, he's like in their philosophy department. And I talked to him once about the historicity of the resurrection and, um, some other things. And, um, but once I realized I could kind of like decide for myself where I wanted to go and where I wanted to be and how I wanted my faith to look, I was like, I don't have to follow rules about what this is. Um, and then I met my partner and my partner's family. Um, and he comes from like a very average American, like Christian experience, like very typical in every possible way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but he had like, he had grown up in Ann Arbor, which is a very culturally diverse place. Um, most of his friends growing up were not white, were not Christian. Um, so like, that's like his experience was like, not only was, are there multiple kinds of Christians? There's also multiple faith traditions. And his point of view was like, none of them are better than any of the others. They're all just what they are. And I was like, that's an interesting perspective. Um, And his sister, uh, my sister-in-law now, uh, she was getting a degree in social work at the time. And she went on rants about the prison industrial complex and new Jim Crow. And so I read that book and, uh, she went on a tear about how Sodom and Gomorrah is about hospitality and not about homosexuality. And um, the sin of your sister Sodom is that she was greedy and did not feed the poor. And I was like, wait, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> um, so like, it was interesting because when I met his sister, I met somebody who like, she shared a lot of my same values because I was starting to like understand that racism is a thing um, and sexism is a thing. And I was starting to be like, these are important values to me. And she had, those values were a part of her Christian faith and like her Christian identity, like motivated her passion to want to like work on these issues. And I was like, oh, that's, that's, that's intriguing. Um, And uh, eventually I was just like, feminism is basically the only explanation for the world that makes sense feminism and womanism and i'm just like this 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 is it and is feminism and womanism compatible with christianity and that was a big question i had to ask um which i started asking after i got married uh and i was like if the answer is christianity and feminism and womanism aren't compatible then i can't be a christian anymore like that's then we're gonna have to part ways um long story short 
I believe feminism and Christianity are compatible. Yeah. Um, more than just compatible. Uh, but not everybody agrees with me, and like I understand uh, the reasons for that and why you might think so. But for me, it's I can blend uh, my Christianity and feminism, and and it works. And I, I yeah, I think in the end, what I've kind of decided is that um, I am a person of faith. I am a spiritual person. The world just makes more sense with a spiritual component to me. Um, for me to like work and live and, and feel like I'm a whole integrated person, I can't ignore the spiritual side of me. Um, and I've chosen to kind of reflect my spirituality and Christianity. Um, and that may not always be the case, but for now it's, it's the tradition I grew up in. It's the tradition I'm familiar with. And it's a tradition that even after all of this, I still like. And it is a beautiful tradition. Um, too complex. Much too complex. Too complex. Much too complex. Hi, everyone. I just need to take a quick break from the conversation um, and let you in on something that's happening at OBA. We are changing our subscription model. Um, it's a big change, but we are pleased to announce a new way to support our Bible app. And as the number one purveyor of Christian, of progressive Christian content, we have effectively become a digital magazine. Cheers to us. Cheers to all of us. Um, finally, we recognize that we need your support on a monthly basis. Um, and community is our driving force. So each month we look to the authors you love. Together we create a selection of daily devotionals that respond to the shifting social movements around us. Um, with a collection of podcasts, books, and Bibles, we have become a media hub that reflects the ideas our, of our community, and that's you. Um, and if you like what we're doing, here's how you can actually tell us. So um, you can subscribe for a for $4.99 a month, and at $4.99 a month, your patron support will allow us to keep up with our premium content. Without community like you willing to help us monthly, we wouldn't exist. Um, we know that not everyone can give $4.99 a month, so um, if this means if you do not have the means we hope you will support our work and our effort to lift christianity to a higher standard um by making a one-time donation on the website um but uh not everybody can give and we really respect that and really that's what the app is here for for everyone regardless of uh what's in our bank account so thank you for trusting us with this work uh as we lean in together and you know i'll stop talking so we can get back to the show <laughs> I love your devotional so much. And what I, one of the first things that pops out to me is that you have been able to put all of those views on um, sexuality and feminism and um, the activism that you do in the world right into this piece. And um, I think that for a while I've been trying to, I've been grappling with the old framework of the Bible and um, how it doesn't really seem to serve us anymore. And at the start of your devotional, you ask us to reconfigure how we read Ruth's story. Um, it bleeds right into imagination. Um, why do you ask us to do that? So, um, coming from my background, I have a lot of hangups about what the Bible is and how you interact with it. Um, and 
it's 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 just very limiting um and uh actually the first thing that kind of made sense that helped was I encountered the Wesleyan quadrilateral where <laughs> you have the pillars and one of them is scripture and one of them is experience and our human experience and our personal encounters with God and with the divine and with our spirituality and with our faith are so critically important to understanding ourselves and understanding each other. If that's um, the kind of like culture and stuff that we're moving in and we need to be able to bring that, like that part is sacred. Like our, text is sacred because of that human experience you had all of these people having encounters with god as people as cultures as communities and recognizing the importance and the validity of that and struggling with that and writing it down um and trying to figure it out and if we approach the bible with the same our experiences with the divine are important and are worth studying and are worth contemplation and are worth preserving, um, then like it's finding that human spiritual experience and resonating with that, with the text. And that for me is what makes the Bible sacred is that relationship that we have with it. Um, and uh, when I took my hermeneutics class in seminary, my professor opened with humans are hermeneutical. We tell that. each other's yeah. stories. Mm -hmm. We have stories of ourselves. We have narratives that shape our identity. We have narratives of family, narratives of culture, narrative of country um, that are built into us. And when we communicate who we are, we tell each other stories about ourselves. And the active interpretation, we interpret ourselves, we interpret our communities, we interpret our stories. Um, and interpreting the Bible is just kind of part and parcel with that and it's it's a special task because it is an ancient text we're not from that culture we don't speak those languages we don't have those idiomatic expressions um so there's 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 barriers in place that you try to have to you have to be careful and aware of um but at the same time these stories are the stories that like live in us um and we have the right to reimagine them the same way that like people can reinvent um the tempest yes girl with helen mirren <laughs> instead of like like you can have a gender bet the tempest and shakespeare would be thrilled with that and we can like gender bend the bible or like those stories are our stories they belong to us yeah um and while i think that sometimes there is a first step of um trying to be aware of cultural context and historical placement um like acknowledging things like feminism didn't actually exist in like 500 BCE. <laughs> um, so let's not try to pretend that it did. Yeah. Uh, but um, sometimes, sometimes you just have to throw the rules out the window and be like, Ruth is my story. The way that like Hermione Granger is like me. Uh. Amy Santiago. <laughs> like I look at Amy Santiago and I'm like, who followed me around with a, for, with a camera for a week? Because that's what my life would be like. Like we should be able to relate to Ruth the way we, we relate to Amy Santiago or Hermione Granger or, you know, Elizabeth Bennett or um, Kate from Taming of the Shrew. Like she, she belongs to us in the way that all those other characters belong to us. And I wanted us to be able to see that. You know, I've never had anybody 
give it, give the truth to me like you just did about the Bible. And I just feel like so much of our complaints and our experiences as we change and grow and try to understand like what this faith thing is, like the, the root of that has all been dogma. It's all been this, this like olden times way of understanding this book that just makes it so distant and far away, you know, and something that we have going for us right now in, in, in our history is that we have become epic. I use that both as a cliche, but also because it's a really good word right now. We've become yeah. epic storytellers. We have become um, amazing uh, recreationists. And I mean, right now we're living in the age of, of television where you can access stories anywhere you are in the world at any time of the day, new and unique stories constantly unfolding. Um, and what a shame that we aren't, we think that we're not able to also recreate story with the Bible. I mean, like what you're talking about is amazing and fantastic. And I really hope that you continue to develop um, this thought into maybe a book because what you've been able to do with Ruth, I feel like just takes, takes what the Bible is and uh, um, from this fundamentalist space where it's so distant and so far away and so untouchable and like just drops it like right into our everyday lives. Um, you're, one of the one of the things that you talk about in your devotional is um, this idea of the foreigner. Um, you have a real message about immigration. Um, what do you think the story of Ruth is actually telling us about our current immigration system and even our president? I mean, that's the first thing that that popped up when I started reading it, and I wanted to ask you that. I've been wanting to ask you that for a while. So <laughs> yeah. So uh, clearly, I can like. There's two points of view that I have on Ruth, which shows up in the devotional. Yeah. Um, because I think there's like there's an aspirational in Ruth mm -hmm. of like. It's, it's such a rich story and you're capable of pulling such deep meaning and resonance with it. And there's also like warnings in Ruth. Yeah. I think that there's, the, there's the tension between these ideas. Um, and I, I love that Ruth at the end of the story, like she becomes the grandmother of Kings that the community yeah. rose up <laughs> around her at the end and said, you are going to be what makes our people great. Um, you are building our house. Um, you are better to us than seven sons. Um, that which in, you know, of course, in uh, Judaism's tradition, seven represents perfection. And so like she's better than perfection and she's the best parts of our future. She's our hope for everything the future can yeah. be. And that that is so incredibly beautiful in Ruth. Um, and then also in the text, Ruth has to give up everything about who she was, which for me, um, I'm coming from like a white immigrant experience, although it's interesting because my family is actually from Eastern Europe. Um, so okay. from after the fall of the Austria-Hungarian Empire, um, they came to America some of them were Hungarian serfs or Polish serfs or Czechoslovakian serfs. So like there's a couple different ethnic identities that came over with my family after uh, World War One. And um, my like my great grandfather was born Vince Farkas and by the end of his life was Vincent. And like this, this our immigration story is a story of becoming white. Um, like when they first came to the U.S., they were 
segregated with everybody else. They lived on the wrong side of the tracks because they weren't allowed to live with the white people. They weren't considered white. Um, and my great great grandmother, like one of the things that my great grandfather can remember her saying more often than anything else is yelling at his father and saying, we're in America now, we speak American. Um, when he would try to revert back to Hungarian because she recognized the like the the pain of being an immigrant in America is that you have to, like if you can't conform everything sucks so she forced conformity on her family wow. and on her children yeah. um and it's 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 a story of loss um and yes, like the end result was that they gained access to white privilege and white supremacy, but they had to give up everything about their ethnic and cultural identity in order yeah. to be able to do that. Um, we had to, like he, my great grandfather, he had um, a cookbook his mother had had. And I was, I was like flipping through it one day and I remember asking him like, oh, what did this taste like? Or did you like this dish? And he said, you know what? My mom like stopped making that and started making like middle-class American oh, no. boiled meat and potatoes yeah. in order, like it was a transition she deliberately made. And um, so like he lost his food, he lost his language, he lost his name. Um, and that's what Ruth had to do. She had to give up her culture. She had to give up her identity. She had to give up her language and her religion in order to be able to conform um, to Bethlehem's expectations. And so it's like, it, there, yeah, there's like that tension where Bethlehem is both like, yay, Ruth, you're amazing. But also Ruth had to sacrifice so much in order to be able to do that. Yeah. I, it's a, I mean, I, I identify with that story because my family's from Zambia, Africa, and um, there is so much assimilation that you have to do. And that's what really makes it uh, different when, when, you know, we do go home. Um, but I mean, wow, you're talking about like white supremacy, you're talking about access to privilege. Um, my God, that is a unique way of looking at it. I thought you were going to talk about how shitty the president is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, this, uh, this administration is definitely not fun. Um, and that's like why, like my devotional series ends on kind of a dark note, kind of deliberately. Like I, I thought about the order I wanted to do you it. You make in. a like, couple wanna, snide like... remarks about like putting kids in cages and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought about, do I want to do the sexist one and then the feminist one and then the pro-immigrant and then, or like the assimilationist and then the pro-immigrant one. I'm like, what order do I want to end this on? I'm like, well, I figure we really, I think we really just need to leave with the gravity of it all. So like, like it ends with, like the, fir the first time I read Ruth after um, kind of encountering this administration and after everything was happening at the border. Um, and I got to the end where the community says, a son is born to Naomi. And I just started crying the first time I read that after, oh. after the um, immigration crisis and everything that's been happening. Because like 
we hear st- there's children who are dying, children who are being sexually abused, children who are being taken away from their parents. And it's like they're going into an adoption industry in this country that is deliberately exploitive. Like some of these kids are going to be adopted into white families and they're never going to see their families again who it's, want that. Yeah, yes. And Ruth, like she's completely silent for the rest, like all through chapter four, she doesn't say anything. And she's erased and everybody in her community is like, a son is born to Naomi. And that reproductive oppression there is just, it's so breathtaking and it it hurt. Um, And it should hurt with like, it was happening. This was something that existed in 500 BCE and it's something that's happening right now. And we haven't, we haven't learned um, not to do this shit. Um, oh yeah it's shameful it's it's heartbreaking and it should be heartbreaking and um ending the devotional series with prayers was actually the first time i'd like written out prayers for other people to pray and you do it for like different groups you're like i'm not just writing a prayer for everyone generally you're like specifically for men specifically for white people like oh my god yeah and um there's a phrase in there that I wasn't sure to, whether or not to include because it comes from my, my King James fundamentalist background a little bit, but it's there's okay. a phrase no shame. Uh, that said um, that was very common when I was growing up where the Holy Spirit would grieve and the Holy Spirit would grieve us and grieve our spirits. And it's an interesting use of that noun there, kind of making it like, like, like the verb noun form of that. It's it, it interacting in a weird way that I wasn't sure about including. But when I hear about things like the border crisis, like my spirit is grieved. It is heavy and full of sorrow. Um, and like, but that, like, that's like the, the terrible beauty of the Bible is that it's so human and brilliant and flawed and real and and all of these things and like you can you can get to a moment where you you encounter something like a son is born to Naomi and have your spirit grieved today because of what's going on um and yeah, so closing the devotional out on that could be a little bit of a, a downer a little bit but I think it's I think it's an important note to kind of care try to carry that grief and to carry that sorrow through your life and do something about it i mean it's it's a downer but it's also um a charge you know like you're basically saying carry this with you because we just can't forget about it you know one of the things that i like is when people say it's been so many so many days and and flint still doesn't have clean water and yeah it like brings down the mood but it also puts some ownership on you the reader um that encourages us to to think of ways that we can actually uh be effective now to realize that like the systems that we benefit from um are also the the reasons why this this is allowed this is allowed to happen and I don't know I think that it it's it's a downer but it's also um, inspiring and in that it gives me a charge it's like go out and remember this and and try and do something about it um, yeah I think what we're doing right now um, 
processing racism, processing all of these systems that that um, have otherwise just been overlooked is incredible. And I mean, I'm I am the first person to to say that our president is is. Uh, more than a joke, just um, you know, <laughs> yeah, a, a cancer. But having this cancer just kind of hover over all of our conversations and all of our daily life has really uh, uh, compressed these issues. I mean, brought these issues to the surface where yeah. we are encountering them on a daily basis with the people that we're interacting with. Um, casually and that's never happened before um and so i don't know devotionals like this need to exist um the worship process that we have uh that also includes social justice and activism needs to continue and i mean that's why i hope you'll continue to write and, and contribute to the i have a whole other series planned <laughs> that's what's up let's see it um okay so before i let you go i always ask my guests this one last question um and feel free to be as open or or as you want but when when did you start having the kind of sex that you wanted to have um about a month after I met the person that I'm now married to. Wait, you had sex before you got married? Oh my god. We did. Um, <laughs> it was. Uh, it was. It was good because um, I've written about all this before, so I have my Your parents are going to be scared. To kind of share the amount of detail that I will. Okay. Because um, I came from purity culture. Um, I grew up in courtship culture. I came I came from the same culture that produced Joshua Harris, like Sovereign Grace Ministries, homeschooling. He was listening to the same tapes on audio that I was listening to that like create created Ikea's dating goodbye. Um, Ugh, barf. So we were kind of being built together. Like I was already convinced courtship was a thing before Ikea's dating goodbye came out. Um, so that's like where I came from. And then. I ended up in a very abusive relationship in college, um, partly because um, it was the first man that had ever shown an, a real interest in me. And I was so desperate not to be queer anymore or struggle with that. So I was just I like threw myself headlong Aww. into that relationship, yeah. trying to like affirm straightness in some way. Um, and that that relationship ended up being very exploitive and very sexually abusive and have a lot of trauma around that. Um, and I carried that with me for years and years and years and was kind of finally starting to say the words out loud. Like I was raped. Like I admitted that to like the first person I'd ever said that to before, like six months before I met my partner. Um, so I was kind of like dealing with all of that, like flashbacks and triggers and episodes were happening. Um, and then I kind of met him in the hubbub of all of trying to deal with this. And um, he was, he wasn't like always has been like such a centering like rock in my trauma storm, basically. Um, and we got the hots for each other and uh, were falling madly in love and very compatible. Um, so uh, we'd been we actually we long distance dated like the entire time we were together and we dated for 11 months and then we got married and moved in together and that oh was the goodness. first time we'd ever been in the same place um living in the same like city so, okay so you're still a lesbian at heart that's why we're 
Well, yeah, so we joke that I'm a lesbian with an exception. <laughs> yes. Um, so, like, interestingly enough, um, I'm attracted to basically every woman. Like, if, if you're a lady, I'm, I'm good. I'm down. <laughs> uh, but when it comes to men, I'm attracted to my husband, uh, Ewan McGregor, who looks like my husband, and oh, Damien Lewis, okay. who looks like my husband and Ewan McGregor. I'm a tall, too tall. I'm attracted to tall, lanky redheads when they're men. And that's like, that's it. If you're not a tall, lanky redhead and you're a dude, I'm just like not interested. Ron so Weasley? My husband's very not lanky. really. No, not Ron Weasley. Yeah. <laughs> um, he like hit that like spot for me, like exactly right. Um, and so our, our first night of sexual escapades um, ended up being like, like like a weekend of sexual escapades. It was Easter weekend, and we did not go to church. Um, and we Dirty. stayed home, and we fooled around. And it did take us a long time to actually build up to penis and vagina intercourse. Um, but I define the whole thing as sex because, like, I'm a lesbian with an exception. A penis yeah. is not what makes it's not what makes sex sex. Yeah. Um, so, uh, it was it was really good for me personally to because at first we we both kind of had purity culture hang-ups um but we were like we don't feel guilty about this also we don't feel guilty for not feeling guilty about this so eh, um, we didn't think about it too hard and then we realized that moving slowly kind of step by step and like having the freedom to do only as much as we wanted and as much as i was comfortable with um and then sometimes we would bump into a trigger and we would we would immediately stop everything and then you know we would cuddle and then go watch a movie and like we were able to do it at a very slow pace where we could like build up to it to the like i had so much space to learn to be comfortable in my skin and learn to be comfortable with my sexuality and with sexual pleasure um and if i think that if at the end of our relationship, after 11 months of dating, if we had gotten married without having done any of that, if we'd like followed all the rules we were supposed to, and we got to the mar- the marriage night and the marriage bed, there would have been so many ridiculous expectations about what that's supposed to be that even though we're reasonable people, reasonable people, I would have had so much baggage and I would have had to be like, okay, so I have to jump headlong into penis and vagina intercourse right away. We're going straight from like kissing and handholding and canoodling to like full blown like intercourse. I just, if that had happened, that all it it would have been so traumatizing and the end result probably would have been, we didn't have sex again for years. Like, It just, it would have been so bad. Purity culture sets you up for failure. I mean, the way you talk about your experience with your husband, I mean, if I had known you back then, I would have been like, marry that man, you know, because like what a, um, what a gentle way of, I don't want to say dealing with somebody, but um, responding to somebody, Um, you know, man you know you talk about sex the way that i feel like i'm listening to like a dan savage episode <laughs> i mean it's just yeah it's just about sex. <laughs> um yeah i'm glad that you brought that up um my god so yeah i highly recommend anybody who's coming from purity culture uh to 
take it slow with somebody who's very gentle and very patient. Um, and even if you don't end up with that person forever, it's a really like take 11 months to like unpack your shit sexually. Because yeah. <laughs> that like like a full year might be what you need. Mm. Uh, but take the time to get there. Uh, take the time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You're right. Ugh. What else do you know? I just feel like you're you're like a box of knowledge. I must. I'm just so curious. And have, uh, my some of my friends in college called me the walking encyclopedia, because um, I'm not only capable of retaining information but recalling it on command, which is its own particular skill. Yeah, and like, um, and it doesn't feel like I'm listening to data when I'm talking to you. It feels like I know there's like there's there's storytelling there too. Yeah, it's because yeah. humans are hermeneutical. <laughs> and you're corny you're so corny <laughs> thank you i try very hard to be as silly as possible i am super corny i think i am a walking dad joke it's really sad <laughs> that's the best the best kind of joke to be honest <laughs> i think that's gonna be my twitter name now walking dad joke <laughs> um samantha where can people find you Online. Um, so Not now that I'm graduating with seminary, <laughs> I'm going to get back to actually being able to write my blog because yeah. all of my reading, researching, writing, headspace, energy has been going towards seminary, but I'm graduating on Sunday. So my blog will become a hot space right around July. I'm going to take a break and then I'm going to start back up in July. Um, and that's it. Samantha P is in page field.com. Um, same thing on Twitter, Samantha P. Field, and on Facebook, it's Samantha P. Field. Page. Awesome. I'm mostly on Twitter these days for the next couple of months. I rant about homeschooling and, and purity culture and video games and nerd shit. Yes, you were made for this podcast and for this app. Seriously. <laughs> um, hey, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. This was so much fun. I love talking to you. We should, I mean, man, there's got to be a conference where I get to actually meet you in real life coming up something. Oh, that would be great. Um, right? I, I am hoping to, like, kind of, you know, go to conferences and do stuff more often. And that's the show. Thank you for tuning in. And I hope you come back next week to hear my convo with Rachel Virginia on her devotional series, More Than Our Anxieties. I also hope that you'll take a moment to subscribe to the app. It is $4.99 a month, and I know I already did a spiel, but we could really use the help. So thank you so much, guys. Okay, bye.